All right, I'm here again with author and filmmaker Brian Francis Culkin, and today we're going to be talking about a book that he wrote called The Ayahuasca Dialogues. It's a conversation or a series of conversations that Brian had with the shaman, um, ayahuasca shaman, Ricardo Amaringo. So, Brian, thanks for coming back. Pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about Ricardo Amaringo, how you found this guy, what this guy is like, and what the Ayahuasca Center is like. Yeah, so Ricardo is a, um, <clears throat> he's, a he's an ayahuascaro, or an ayahuasca healer, healer, from the Shipibo tradition, which is one of the indigenous groups in the upper Peruvian Amazon. They're actually from the Pulcapa area originally. And uh, Ricardo is the owner and found, co-founder um, of the Niwe Rao um, Ayahuasca Center. He co-founded it with an American doctor named Joe, Tafor, Joe Tarfor and an artist named uh, Svita Mamik. And um, together, and, and, um, and Ricard, they since have left, uh, they're, they're still involved in the sense that they bring groups down there to, to work with the medicine. But now Ricardo's basically running it himself, and um, and yeah, it's 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 in the town of Lanchama, which is about an hour and a half from uh, the city of Iquitos. Cool. Yep. Um, so this is somewhere that's right on the river, or it's in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by jungle forest. It's definitely you know it's not like in the middle of the jungle, right? Because we're we're still relatively close in jungle time from Iquitos. I mean, yeah. the middle of the jungle Iquitos could be like. Five days away, right, right? right? So we're 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 still. Uh, you can get to Niue Rao for the majority of the year with a with a motorcycle or a motor taxi, and then during the rainy season, for about two or three months, you need for the end of, end part of the journey, you need to take a boat. So it's still relatively close to the city, but you know when you're there, you do feel like you're in the jungle. I mean, there's a small village that is about um, I don't know maybe a quarter mile, half mile walk, and it's, it's along the Nanai River, not the Amazon. Um, so yeah, it's it's nestled right along the river, pretty much. It's you know five minute walk to the to the banks, and near a small town. And um, but yes, when you're there, you do feel like you're in the middle of the jungle, even though you're really not. When we think of the jungle in terms of how huge and massive it right. is, and how far you can really get in there if you really want to go. Right. Yeah. So I think a, a good place to start, perhaps for people that might not know what ayahuasca is or have never heard of ayahuasca. Sure. Maybe we could talk about the origins of ayahuasca and what it's used for. Sure. Well, I don't really know anything about the origins of ayahuasca, and I don't think many people do. Um, I asked this question to Ricardo in the book, and his answer wasn't you know, a scientific answer. It was a narrative answer in the sense that what he said, something to the effect that you know, the early Shipibo shamans had a vision and they were told to go to one part of the jungle to get this uh, tree branch and this part of the jungle to get this leaf and combine it into an admixture and you'll have a kind of a healing remedy to help the people of your village. So that, of course, it's a very interesting narration of the origins of ayahuasca, but in terms of like an anthropologically, you know, uh, precise answer of where it came from, I don't know if anyone can answer that right now. Yeah. You know, but it's here, you know, and I think what it what is interesting is that ayahuasca has been part of various indigenous traditions in the upper Peruvian Amazon and, and in Brazil for a long time, you know, maybe thousands of years. 
and it has somehow come into focus in the 21st century as being a new kind of therapeutic model and new even though it's thousands of years old yeah well that's that's i think that's an interesting um something that, that i touch upon in the introduction to the book yeah um that is an interesting phenomena in the sense that a lot of the therapists and a lot of the i guess healers and more developed Western economies, like people in America and people who are in Europe or wherever that are starting to engage with ayahuasca, it is often presented as this like radically new alternative therapy when in fact it's very old. It's yeah. ancient, right? right? So there, there's a juxtaposition there that I think is interesting. Um, but what it is, ayahuasca, it's an admixture of two different plants that combine into a psychedelic brew, basically. And that when you ingest it into your body, because of the admixture becomes orally active, um, that it induces a state of, it, it, it induces a psychedelic state, basically, where you have not only visions, but also induces all kinds of neurobio, neur, neurological and emotional changes within the body. So, I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about ayahuasca is that, yes, when you drink it, you can have these wild, psychedelic experiences, these wild visions of different temporalities and different spaces and different beings even. But other times you can drink it and just have these really powerful sensations, right? Where it's not necessarily visual, it's more of an organic phenomena where you're feeling things and sensing things. And these feelings can be um, ecstatic, I think is the word to use, but they can also be quite terrifying and they can be quite intense and they can be, they can be quite um, dark maybe. Um, so a lot of it depends on the individual taking it. You right. know, the, the idea of set and setting, right? Yeah. So a lot of it depends on the environment that you're taking it in. And it also depends on the quality of the brew that you're taking. I mean, if you drink a, a batch of ayahuasca that's not, that's not properly prepared, you're not going to have the same experience when it's, when it's expertly prepared by somebody that knows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. So, so it's a combination of two plants. One contains dimethyltryptamine, and yep. the other is some sort of inhibitor that allows your body to um, receive the effects of. The yeah, dimethyltryptamine, which is found in the tracuna leaf, it's uh, one of the families of of psychedelic plants, you could say. Um, it's worth noting that that's actually an endogenous chemical in, in the human yes, body. Yes, it is. A, that is produced yes. in our body as well. However, it doesn't have the psychedelic effect when it's when it's produced internally. But um, at least that at least we don't know that yet, right. right? But perhaps through other means, such as holotropic breathing or Kundalini yoga, it's possible. Possible, to produce possible. Amount, so. Yeah, I think there's people researching that, but you know that's not something that I know a lot about, so I can't speak to that. Um, dimethyltryptamine in and of itself is not orally active. Right. It's only active if it's injected or smoked, and so that's. That's one component of the ayahuasca brew, which is called the chacuna leaf. The second component, it's actually, it's interesting because, you know, ayahuasca, it's kind of strange in the sense that the brew itself is called ayahuasca, but also one part is called ayahuasca too, right? So ayahuasca is a combination of the chacuna leaf and the copy vine, which is also colloquially known as ayahuasca. Right. And right. that contains beta carbolines, such as harmine and harmaline. And those, what those do is essentially make the, the DMT orally active. Right. So it inhibits the part of um, our 
our neurological system that prevents these kind of psychoactive agents from entering and disturbing our neurological space. So these two things together produce this wild experience known as ayahuasca. It, it's just so mind-boggling to me that you have something on the order of 150,000 varieties of plants in the Amazon, and yet... That's it? The, the, Is that it? Or something like that, okay. possibly more. Well, yeah, I mean, I, sure. I don't know, but I, I would think it would be more than that, but it, yeah. It, it's, it's a lot, whatever yes. it is, but yet somehow these guys figured out to combine these two plants in just the right way so that this, this DMT can be, become orally active. Sure. It's like, I, I'm just envisioning some crazy man going out on journeys just putting different plants together and boiling them and seeing if they have effects or... I mean, I know there's no way to know, but yes. do, you, do you think that this, I know he talked about this a little bit, that it came through dreams and dream states. That I mean, it, it, it is an interesting question because if you just, let's just say there are 150,000, I mean, that to find that combination mathematically would seem almost impossible. Yeah, exactly. The odds of that are impossible. So that does suggest that the indigenous peoples of the upper Peruvian Amazon either had A, a unbelievably encyclopedic knowledge about the vegetative life that they were living amongst, or that there was some kind of spiritual intervention that discloses information to these tribes, whether it was a dream, whether it was some kind of, I don't know, some kind of, you know, there's other theories about spiritual entities and so on and so forth. So I don't really know, but it is miraculous because what is interesting is that when you do experience ayahuasca, the only conclusion that you can come to is that it's a miracle, yeah. that something like this can exist. Yeah. Because when you have these kind of visions and you have these kind of embodied experiences and these sensations and these feelings and these cognitions, you cannot fathom that this is a terrestrial phenomena. You can't imagine this is just something that's in our world. That's how could this have been here? And we didn't know about it. Or from the other angle, how could have, how could someone in this world have thought of this, right? Thought of putting these two plans together. So that opens up all kinds of questions that, are certainly beyond the scope of my capacity to answer, but I think they're very interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And, you know, just to be clear, no one has the answer to it. Yeah. No one knows for, for certain how this developed. Yeah, and we, yeah. we probably never will know because it's probably not. so far in the yeah. past. But that's maybe good, though, right? Because there's some things that are better not knowing. I was saying earlier, yeah. some things are better left unsaid. Some things are yeah. better, you know, some things... You yeah, know, the, the mystery of it is, yes. is yes. really In, profound. Important, yes. I agree. Um, can you talk about the difference between a shaman versus a priest some, and some of the similarities? Um, I think they're different and they're similar. I think a shaman is a priest in many ways, but I think that when you say priest, what do you mean? You mean like a Catholic priest? Or what yeah. do you mean? Yeah, like a, a holy person in, in the modern world. Okay, so that, that would be maybe like somebody, like a Jewish rabbi or a priest. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that the main difference between a shaman and a priest-like figure, whether it's a iman or a rabbi or a, a guru, um, is that a, a shaman is definitely... I mean, I, I think, first, the similarity. All these people engage in some kind of healing practice. Um, when we think of a Catholic priest, at least in contemporary 21st century society, we, don't, we think of them in a more formal way, that they're you know, presiding over a mass, but, you know, I think also, too, like they, they give the Eucharist, they give confession, they, they do, you know, they, they give last rites. So there are certain healing functions that, let's say, a Catholic priest performs. But I think when we think of a shaman, the, 
the, the intensity is ratcheted up a couple notches. I think that's the first thing. And I also think what the shaman does is different is there's a, a direct engagement with, these veget with vegetative life, which a Catholic priest doesn't necessarily engage with, right? Because a shaman is dealing with living nature and a Catholic priest is dealing with theoretical discourse, excuse me, theological discourses right. um, or uh, ritualistic practices. Um, the other thing too I think is interesting, and this is kind of true for priests, <coughs> is that a shaman is like a, what makes a shaman a shaman is that they are an anthropologically fringe figure. Like what makes a shaman a shaman is the fact they live outside of society. They live on the outside of things. Right. Now to a point, a priest does that too, right? They're not married. They live in the they live in their, their private quarters. But at the same time, like they're in the middle of the city, right? You know, yeah. if, you, if you go to like, a, par like a, a parish church in Brooklyn or in Boston, they're, they're still in the middle of things and they're dealing with people on a day-to-day -day level. Whereas a shaman is much more fringe. They're much more outside of things. And it is, it is the fact that they live on the fringe of society that gives them their spiritual potency, their capacity to have visions, and their, um, their knowledge of, of how to heal Society. So there's, and the other thing too, I think, is that a shaman, and this would be something that Terence McKenna said, a shaman doesn't take culture seriously. Like what makes your everyday Joe seriously is that they're immersed in culture. Right. They're, they're really, it's like ideology. They're immersed in ideological systems, and because of that, they take it seriously, and like they think life serious. Whereas the shaman sees culture more as in game terminology, it's like it's a play. It's it's more it's it, ha it has the appearance of a fiction, and because of that, they have the capacity to intervene in the fiction and directly manipulate it through their healing practices. Wow, that, that's almost reminiscent of some like Hindu or Buddhist. A little bit that that life is sort of a game or or a theatrical play that sure. we're all playing. We're playing roles. In. Sure, sure, sure. But again, I think that the because the shaman has a more, I think. What I think it is is that shamans were like the original priests, right? And then as theologies developed, you had this split between shamanism and theology, you could say, whereas theology has a, a more theoretical background. It has a practical background too, whereas shamanism is much more like, I always, I always say like a shamanism is more like being a car mechanic or being like a plumber or being like an electrician. It's a trade. Right. It's not a theoretical, like shamans at least the ones i know they're not giving like discourses on the meaning of life you know right. they're more like a car mechanic in the sense that they know how to do something very very well they're very skilled in something they know a lot about a certain a certain set of knowledge and they can apply that knowledge right would you uh, would you say that you could almost compare shamans more more of like a doctor than, than a, yes a or a car mechanic yeah it, it, it's a trade yeah you know and a priest is true to a point, but it, it has more theoretical. And, you know, a doctor is very theoretical, too, right? Sure. I mean, when you go to medical school, you're studying all kinds of different theories. Yeah. Whereas, so that, that's why I tend to compare it to a trade more than okay. the medical profession. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, 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 it's more of a practical thing that you learn how to do. Um, and you learn how to. And, you know, the car, the quote unquote, you know, I say car mechanic, but the car for the shaman is the human body. It's the human psyche. It's the human soul. Right. And that's what they, they have learned how to heal and fix and manipulate and I, and I use the word manipulate in the best possible uh, terms what are some of the potential therapeutic benefits of drinking ayahuasca um, I think that so I think that a, any 
therapeutic process. It's kind of reorganizing a person's linguistic makeup. And what I mean by that is that if you were to go certainly into psycho, psych, psychoanalysis, but even into like even something like cognitive behavioral therapy, what you're doing is you're re-talking out your past. You're trying to put your past into a coherent text, which the therapist can acknowledge and saying, ah, I, I understand. So like being affirmed by the presence of the other can somehow induce a, a, a healing process in the sense that you're making sense of your past. And then also what comes with that is these like emotions and these things that have been trapped in your cells and in your body that are released in the process. That's why a lot of times in therapy, in addition to talking, emotions come out, you know, you're crying, anger, whatever, right? There's a process of both encapsulating your life biography in a textual format or a new textual format, right. and then also releasing energies that have been, I guess, insisted with, within the body. And I think ayahuasca does that, but it does it in a very different way. This new capacity to symbolize your life, to make sense of what has happened, is disclosed through visions. So, so you're not like talking it out with a therapist. You're like for somehow the brew is coming into your body and it's like, I don't know, we don't know what it's doing really in the brain, but it's producing these visions where you can say, ah, okay, like that's what that meant, right? Because when you're in a therapeutic, pro like a talk therapeutic process, you're talking out your past, really. That's what you're doing. You're, and, and in a very formal sense, you're trying to retextualize or give significa signification, linguistic signification to your past. And that's what ayahuasca does. And the second thing it does is that because it has the capacity to flood the body with feelings and emotions, you're able to re-experience certain things that you may have been blocked before. And that's why one of the big features of ayahuasca is purging. Right, it's like right. you throw up, um, and you're not just throwing up the content in your stomach. You're literally throwing up memories and feelings and experiences, and from that purge, you feel a sense of liberation and freedom. So it's oftentimes it's not a, a fun experience. Oftentimes it can be very difficult, and that you're you're vomiting and having some of these negative emotions and negative memories come up and be purged from your, your being completely. It's tough to put it in like, like some time, you know, you don't really know because everyone's so different, right? right? So it's tough, to, it's tough to put a, uh, a, a quantitative value on something like that. But yeah, I would just say that every ceremony can be very different. Some can be very ecstatic where it, the whole time is like a sense, is like a state of spiritual ecstasy or spiritual bliss. And then of course, other times can be very painful, very difficult, very challenging. Um, so, but at the same time, the the ayahuasca experience is a process, so you have to keep you have, you keep doing it, and and when you're when you're done, you're done, you know. So you just don't know how when a per, how long or how much a person wants to do it for. So you you drank it for the better part of two years. Just or so. about yeah, year year and a half, yeah. So by the end of it, did the ayahuasca tell you that you're finished, or how did well, you know? I don't, I don't know if ayahuasca did, but I kind of felt myself that I. And this isn't to say I'll never drink ayahuasca again, but it's just I don't feel the need to do it as much I was as when I was living out in the jungle, which is for about a year and a half, two years. I was taking it, you know, three, four times a week, wow. and that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So, um, and after that experience, which was overall very positive, I just came to a place in my life where I was like, you know, something I don't need to do that that much, you know. So, um, did you did you feel like it stopped teaching you at some point, or? Did, were you still learning? Every I think my body just needed a break. 
That, that's how I would say it. Okay. No, I, I still, I think I was still learning things, but maybe some of the lessons were repetitive. And I also think sometimes in life, you get a step away from something, and then if I go back to it in the future, I'll have a new, it'll be better, right? Because I think yeah. if you keep grinding on something, it's not helpful. Right. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just got to just, like, no one enough is enough. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, Amaringa said ayahuasca is more advanced than some of our scientific ways of, of healing, which I think is really interesting to, to put it in, in that kind of terminology. Well, I think you might be right. Yeah. You know, because I think when you look at the pharmacological horizon of American society, it's not really doing a lot to help people. Yeah. I think yeah, a lot think of people... I think we should talk about that a little bit. What, what, what are the differences between ayahuasca in terms of healing as opposed to modern medicine? Well, I think... Let, let me just first say that I think that even though I'm hypothetically pro-science, I think that science plays too big of a role in society today. I think everything is reduced to, to you know, quote-unquote, science. And, you know, you know, science says this antidepressant is effective. Well, it's, it's not effective. And the reason why it's not effective is because any average Joe can tell you that, that when, the, when the, so many people are taking it and you still have these waves of depression and anxiety and all these mental pathologies, it's not effective. Yeah. There's a problem. And I also think, too, the problem with science is that it reduces psychological problems to the individual. And, you know, the, I think that to be depressed or to have some kind of psycho, psychopathology in contemporary, in contemporary American society is as normal of a reaction as you can possibly have. Right. I think if you weren't depressed, it would be weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. So I think that the structure of technology, the structure of capitalism creates a social space of hyper-competition, social atomization, and really like this structural loneliness. And that, of course, creates a environment of depression, really socialized depression. Yeah. So if you're living in an environment of socialized depression, taking an antidepressant is not going to do anything, right. nothing. Because what science is, see, science can't account for the link between the social environment and individual biochemistry. Right. So they're trying to say all of the problem resides in malfunction neurons or whatever, or receptors or whatever they're saying. And that, although yes, of course, neuroscience does play a role in mental vitality. That's obvious. That's completely obvious. And anyone who denies that, you know, you, they shouldn't be taken seriously. However, there's a social dimension. There's a cultural dimension to psychic vitality, to psychic health. And that has to do with our relationships with other people in our lives. It has to do with how we experience the culture that we live in. And it also has to experience how we generate meaning. Right. So I think that ayahuasca inherently, even though a lot of the centers are that are catered to Western tourists and, you know, people coming down to drink it to heal themselves, don't necessarily have this element. But ayahuasca is an inherently social element in the sense that historically speaking, shamans were drinking that to diagnose problems in the tribe, diagnose, you know, where, where we should hunt, where we should go, what we should do. So there's an inherent social dimension to ayahuasca. And also, too, the fact that today when you drink ayahuasca, you do it in a group setting. It's a communal setting, right? So there's a, there's a social dimension to the, to the ceremony itself, which I think is very healthy. Um, Would you say there's a social dimension not, not only amongst human beings, but with the greater environment as well? I mean, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think 
that's you know you know very obvious that human beings are social animals and that part of the problem today and I just alluded to this a couple of minutes ago is that the social dimension of our lives have been colonized by both capitalism and technology yeah. that and now we've been disconnected we've, from our, our connection yeah well because there's because there's a there's a there's a power that that lives between us now right there's something has happened with the development of technology and its relationship to again I I keep using this word capitalism but I don't know what I don't know what word to use right. you know so this is why I use this word um, this this integration that has happened over the past 30 years or so that has been getting progressively progressively more powerful it is very much like there is a a force field or an energy that sits between human beings now and that energy is colonizing and and taking and sucking out the vitality of the social dimension to our lives of the cultural dimension to our lives of our capacity to generate meaning and i think that is many in many reasons raw that is why for in many reasons why something like ayahuasca has become so in vogue over the past decade i mean and then psychedelics and 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 uh and why people are retreating from quote-unquote reality to enter into this new psychedelic space and and that's something that needs to be further theoretically developed in, in, in my mind i think like a lot of the writers that um at least a lot of the theorists or writers that engage with philosophy and theory this is an, an, a huge area that needs to be developed, you know, and this is, I, I wouldn't say all of my writing is focused on this, but some of it certainly has, yeah. you know. Um, America says that the universe is full of spirits. He says there's good spirits, there's bad spirits. What is he referring to exactly? What, what do you make of what he says about that? You know, I don't really know his, his, his cosmology entirely because it tends to be, it tends to change sometimes, right? And he tends to be, and I say this with all due respect, but like kind of, you know, the old saying, loosen his lips. He says sure. things a lot. And I'm sure, just like, sure. wait, what? You know? But I think, uh, I think Ricardo, from what I can tell, is to a certain degree a combination of, uh, uh, I guess, in indigenous spirituality, you know, kind of a, and then, but he, there's also a Christian dimension to Amaringo's thought without question, you know, in the sense that he has great admiration for it. Not so much the, Christian church, but for the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, but there, I mean, what is evident in any way, without pinning down his cosmology, what is definitely evident about Amaringo is that the world is permeated with spirituality, not just in terms of existential beings floating around the planet, but actually like the ground itself is a spiritual organism. Wow. This, this is undoubtable in terms of his in terms of his cosmological So like the, the universe as a living organism. Oh, definitely for him. Yeah, it's, it's Spinozan in the sense that nature is alive, it's beating, um, it has a consciousness. Is that something that you, you felt too with your experience with yes, ayahuasca? Yes, I would agree with that too. Like I said, like I tend to resist paganism, but I do think that the universe is alive and I do think that the earth has a conscious dimension to it that is that has been that has yet been explored by western science i, I would definitely agree with that well wow. yeah with, without question cool yeah what what do you think of the shaman as a spiritual scientist um spiritual scientist hmm i don't know if i'd use that word but i think what a shaman is in no matter what context that you find them is they're a healer and i think that they're See, like they're healing 
the way shamans heal to me is like the opposite of science. It's completely intuitive. It's completely in the moment. It's, it springs from an, an organic intelligence that comes from the shaman's knowledge of nature and also their own communion with nature. How they're, you know, I think what's interesting about a shaman and what separates them from the average person is that with a shaman, and this is, this is why shamans tend to like live, like most shamans that I personally know, they're not like, I don't want to say like the most friendly people, but they're really not. Like they don't really want anything to do with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not like, hey, how you doing? Like they're they're really minding their own business. They do they know? not want to like mix energies with, with. I think that's what it is. Yeah. You know, they're they're protective of their own. They're very sensitive. To, they're they're, to they're all very the very sensitive people. They're also strong people too. Right. But they have a they're they're sensitive to different energetic compositions or different energies. So they're not like being friend. Hey, how you doing? You know, let's. Come, come sit down and talk. Not right, at all. Right. They're, they're really minding their own business. Sure. You know? And the other thing about shamans is even though they're, what I, what I said, anthropological fringe figures, they're also like unbelievably practical. Like they're very, like most shamans that I know like, like, like to watch soccer games and hang out with their family. Like yeah. that's it. You know what I mean? Like they're not like new agey. They're not outwardly spiritual. Like the way they dress and the way they present themselves Again, like a car mechanic, there's like normal guys. You yeah. know what I mean? There, there's nothing uh, re- necessarily remarkable about their outward appearance that would indicate that this person's quote unquote spiritual. They seem to be, uh, you know, in many ways almost unremarkable, just kind of, okay, this guy's a shaman, really? Um, <laughs> but then when you get them in their context and their environment and you see what, they, what they're capable of doing, like for instance, Amaringo, I mean, when you see him at work in the Maloka at night, he's like a, he's like a superhuman or something like that. Yeah. He's unbelievable yeah. in terms of his singing ability, in terms of his endurance. Can you and, talk about the, the, the songs, the Icaros? What, what are the role of the Icaros in the ceremony? Yeah, so the Icaros, it's interesting. I talk about this a little bit in the, in the book that, you know, all spiritual traditions have song that accompanies it for instance in the yoga in the bhakti yoga tradition you have you know chanting in the catholic tradition you have you know gregorian monk singing and, yeah. and uh, you know there's jewish songs and there's chanting in, in the islamic tradition in the buddhist tradition and you know ikaros are part of that song uh, being mixed with spirituality but i think what's interesting about ikaros is that in one sense they're very primal like you, you, you think of like a, you know, let's say a, a Gregorian chant, and it has a more like kind of melodic structure to it. Sure. A, a more refined harmony, whereas Icaros are just like coming almost like from the center of the earth. They're just coming through the shaman. And then in another sense, I feel like the Icaros are more advanced than these different spiritual songs. They're like cosmological. They're almost like from a different planet. Yeah. So it's like this combination of being both otherworldly or other planetary, but also like very, very earthy and muddy and like from the, they, it's like they're coming from the, from the ground up, yeah. you know? So I think that... Um, What's the effect it's having on your, your body and your mind as they're singing? Well, when a, shaman call, when a shaman calls you up and sings directly to you, he's usually only a few feet away from you. And, you know, because the medicine is activated, because ayahuasca is activated in your body, there tends to be a much more sensitivity to things. So it's like you can feel almost like it just, you can feel on your skin the vibration of the song, right? You can wow. feel it like in, in your pores. And if the shaman is good, 
then he can direct the Icaros to like kind of go into parts of the body and do different things, remove things, add things. You know, well, I, I, it's tough to say what they're doing, but they use the song as a conduit to take the medicine of their own medicine and the medicine of the plant that they're working with yeah. to inject it into their patient to induce some kind of change. Cool. Wow, that's beautiful. <clears throat> can you talk about the dieta and what the role of that is in combination with the ayahuasca? Sure. So a dieta... A dieta is a, a different healing technique that is both separate and also part of the ayahuasca experience. But a dieta, in, in very simple terminology, is a um, it is a a time frame where you are re- engaging in both diet restrictions and behavioral restrictions to have a which is like no sugar, no salt, no meat, no, no meat, oil, no oil. Yeah, the, there's a series of dietary restrictions, but those are the main ones you just touched upon like no processed foods or anything like that, right? right? Uh, and then the behavioral restrictions is no sex, no intimate contact with another person, no, you know, walking through a downtown city, you know, something like that. Um, no, you know, no media saturation to your brain, right? So, so there are behavioral restrictions and there are dietary restrictions. And then, in the, and then plus that, you're given a certain tincture of a certain plant or a certain tree native to the Amazon to drink throughout the diet period. And then you're also usually, although not, not always, you don't have to drink ayahuasca during a diet, but usually that's supplemented with a sporadic ayahuasca ceremonies as well. To, and what ayahuasca does is it kind of centers and supplements and, and uh, strengthens the, the diet. But basically what a diet is, is it's, it's trying to link our own body with the healing potential of a tree or a plant and the way that is done is, again, through these behavioral and dietary restrictions. So Amaringo said that he would be on one of these diets for like two years at a time or a yes. year at a time. How, how long were you typically on these diets for? I think in my life overall, I've probably dieted a little bit over a year. And I, but my, I've never done like a, a continuous, like, you know, Ricardo has done like a, a continuous two-year diet, which is like, oh my, it's unbelievable to even think of that. Because diets are very intense. Yeah. They're very demanding. They're very, they're very powerful. Um, so I've done, you know, let's, like a three-month diet once. I did a two-month diet. I've done several 10-day diets. So it's just different for different people. Wow. Yeah. Did you feel changes in, in the oh, way you were thinking definitely. in your body? Oh, after definitely, it? definitely, definitely. Just like more clean or? Definitely more clean. More more clarity? More clarity. Um, more, more open to the world, I think, which can be both good and bad. But there is something, again, I think this is subjectively different for different people. Sure. But, there, but the process does definitely induce a change for sure. For sure. And, and the change tends to be positive. But I also think that, you know, during dieting, because of these restrictions that are, and plus, you know, you're, you're living in what's called a tambo, which is like an isolated small little house in the jungle. So like, a, like when you're doing a diet, you tend to really not to be talking to anybody. Right. You tend to be by yourself for extended periods of time, which for a person coming from, let's say, Manhattan or San Francisco or Los Angeles, that can be very difficult. Sure. You know, very, very difficult. Yeah. To be in the jungle by yourself, you know, having these these media restrictions and these behavioral restrictions and not being able to eat the food that you usually eat, that, that can be tough. So you talked, you talked about how in the past they used ayahuasca to find new places to hunt or diagnose problems within the community. Uh, from the scientific perspective, researchers are really interested in ayahuasca's ability to treat things like 
PTSD, depression, things of the mind. Sure. But can ayahuasca be used to treat physical ailments as well and oh, yeah. ailments of the body? Oh, definitely. Like what, definitely. what kind? Um, I think that, and I would, I would say plant medicine in general, not just ayahuasca, can be used to treat that. I mean, you know, I don't know, arthritis maybe. Um, you know, sometimes people who are really sick, who have maybe even cancer. I mean, I, I tend to be not, I wouldn't say skeptical, but I tend to not advertise things like that because that's a very serious claim, you yeah. know, like plant medicine can cure cancer. But I think people who have all kinds of different physical pathologies, I have seen down in the keto since I've been living here, that have, have stated that plant medicine has helped them heal their body. Wow. Yeah. It, it seems like in modern medicine with pharmaceuticals, we don't really have this idea of the individual playing an active role in their healing. But no, with, it's a passive thing. It's like yeah. you take the medicine and it gets better. Yeah, but with, with ayahuasca, it seems to be the other way around. It it's, seems to be that you're an important player, active player. It's, it's much more reciprocal. It's much more symbiotic where, yes, ayahuasca does play. It, you are a passive to a point because you're drinking a medicine and taking it in your body. But I think, too, part of the ayahuasca experience is, is calling the individual to take more responsibility for their own healing and their own life and their own past and their own actions. I think a big thing with ayahuasca, what it tends to do a lot of the times is show what a jerk you've been. Yeah. And to show things you've done wrong. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think that is... Um, Does that happen at more in the beginning stages? I think so. Okay. I think so. And then you can clean a lot of that stuff up and kind of deal with, okay, that happened. No, you know, you know forgive and move on. But I think that's a big thing. And of course, that's central to, you know, Judaism and Christianity. And I mean, you gotta, you got to be a good person when, when you're down here living on the, on, on the earth. Right. You know, you, gotta, uh, you know, it's like Ten Commandments type of stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And ayahuasca tends to show that in a very innovative way and sometimes a very disturbing way, too, you know? Yeah. Because yeah, it, it holds up a mirror to who you are. And who we are, of course, has to do with our own actions as well. Yeah. So someone comes down to Iquitos or to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca and they learn a lot about themselves and feel like they, they've healed themselves and they want to go back to their old lives. We, we talked about how there's bad energy, how the, the system that we live in creates a lot of the sickness and problems that we have. So how do, how do you think a person can, can fight off that energy and, and keep themselves pure when they return back home? I think that's one of the, a friend of mine, a psychotherapist living in Los Angeles named Elliot Rosenstock, he wrote a book called Zizek in the Clinic, and he talks a little bit about this to the point, but he says, you know, part of the, one of the things he says, I don't want to summarize this whole book, but one of the things he says, and I think it's a very, very important point, is that in order to heal yourself, one of the things you have to do is you have to be like minimally aware of the environment that you're living in, you know, in addition to cleaning up your own personal life. So I think in terms of ayahuasca, and you know, Rosenstock would of course say you have to be aware of capitalism because capitalism is the meta-structuring principle of American society. So I think that's, that can be true. Like for instance, if somebody comes down to let's say the Amazon jungle to drink ayahuasca, they do like, let's just say a three-week um, retreat. And after the three weeks, they feel fantastic. You know, so much change for them. They had all these different epiphanies and they just feel like a new person really. And they get on the plane, they go back to Manhattan, and they go back to their same job, and, they get, and then all of a sudden, two weeks later, they're in like the same vibratory structure of the life they were living in. Exactly. They're kind of frustrated at work. They're kind of, and this can all of a sudden be a catalyst. Now, this is not to say the symptoms will be as bad as beforehand, 
but the symptoms will still be there because the symptoms aren't yours. They're the environment that you're living in, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think part of the healing journey today, in addition to being responsible for your own symptoms and your own uh, you know, psychic biography, is also to not take ownership of the desire that's not yours. It's to let society, you know what I mean? And, but that can, that's, very, that's much easier said than done. Yeah. That's much easier said than done. So I would, um, that's something that, you know, so that there has to be kind of a, I think it's good to have a, a therapeutic accompaniment to healing, I guess. That's what I'd say. You know, to, By that, to, you mean like to, psychotherapy? To, or? No, I mean be knowledgeable of the environment that you're living in. Sure. Be knowledgeable of the, the forces that are telling you what to do and what you desire and how to live your life. Yeah. And also, I think we also have to be honest with the fact that we're living in a, at least in America, and really a planetary society that's on the verge of, I don't know if I'd be as dramatic as to say collapse, but we're, we're, we are living through a crisis. Something like that. And when yeah. you're living through a crisis, no matter when or where, that can be tough. You know? So I think people have to take it easy on themselves and, and try to separate as best they can the ideological program that is central to this new type of technological capitalism that we're living with and our own healing journey. They're separate things. Yeah. They, they interrelate, definitely, and they affect each other, but they're also separate as well. Sure. What do you make of the fact that plant medicines are, on the whole, illegal in the United States and, and in many of Western countries? I have mixed feelings about that. It, it seems so strange that things that can heal people so profoundly and give them a sense of freedom are, are the substances that are illegal. And the yes. ones that are legal are the ones that, that hold you prisoner, like yes. alcohol and nicotine. Yes. It's a tough question. I mean... I mean, like some people will say like, oh, imagine if ayahuasca was legal in America and everyone could do ceremonies and things would get better so quick. And my feeling is like, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, and I'm a big believer in ayahuasca, but I think that um, there has to be a lot of discernment how you use it. And I think that we like because we live in a consumer culture, a very infantile culture, and also a culture that's bent on monetizing everything. I think if you were to release ayahuasca into a culture like America, it could be disastrous. Yeah. It could be absolutely disastrous. Right. So this, um, this push to decriminalize, and, and, and again, it's not so much that I want to criminalize, like, I don't think anyone should go to jail for marijuana. I mean, not, not that at all. But I think that we live in a very complicated time. We have to be very mindful about what we're doing. And I think this, like, just decriminalize everything. Nope. I mean, I think to me that... I don't know. I just, I just think there are hidden problems with that strategy that have to be thought out. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, in terms of marijuana, like I don't smoke marijuana. I don't really like marijuana, and I don't necessarily think. I think there are a lot of other plants that are a lot more that are a lot better for the things that marijuana can do. Um, so I tend to not advocate for it. Um, but at the same time, I don't think anyone should go to jail for marijuana. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And absolutely not. And some of these stories, when you look in particularly the African American community in America. You know, people go to jail for 10 years for having an ounce of weed. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, I, I tend to, I wouldn't say I'm conservative, but I tend to be more not as gung-ho about these things as other people. I tend to be a little bit more, okay, let's stop and see what we're doing here. Um, what, what, what would be a vision for you 
for the appropriate future of well, plant I, medicines I, in, in I don't the know States. because I think I think it's impossible to say because my vision of the United States tends to be tending towards breakdown. So I, I think like my my thoughts are on like, hey, what will like the ayahuasca scene be like in America in twenty thirty? Because in twenty thirty I feel like America could be in a, have a lot more problems on its hand than where to drink ayahuasca. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's not something I really necessarily devote a lot of thought to. Yeah. But, but other people do, and you should listen to them. You sure. know? But that's not something that I'm necessarily interested in or really care about. Okay. Yeah. What about uh, language in ayahuasca? Because it, it seems like, um, and we, we've talked a little bit about Terrence McKenna and how he mentions that language seems to be something that is evolving and changing. What, what does ayahuasca tell us about language? Well, language is definitely evolving and changing, but McKenna would also say that our language, you know, is kind of hitting a dead end as well. And he would say that the the actually what McKenna would say is that the crisis of planet Earth is a crisis of language. It is a linguistic crisis in the sense that we are unable to speak what this crisis is, and we're also unable to. I don't know, invent a new way of generating meaning. And I think what is interesting right now, and this is a point that I touch upon in the epilogue, is that at this very moment, whether we know it or not, human beings are in the process of learning a new language, and that, of course, is computational signification. And that, to me, is not the language McKenna's talking about. McKenna's talking about it like a new spiritual language, a new, a, a, a cosmic language, and that's why I brought up the film Arrival in the, in the, in the, in the Ayahuasca Dialogues, because that's a film that explicitly deals with, I don't know if you saw that film, it's a wonderful film, it's a wonderful film with um, Forrest Whitaker and Amy Adams and, um, and Jeremy Renner. But it's about basically in a, a scientist and a, and a professor of linguistics that comes in contact with an alien ship. And these aliens speak in a new language that transcends time and space. And I think that's something that McKenna is trying to get at, is that we, like, for, like, what he's really saying is that the evolution of human beings is simply linguistic evolution. That's all it is. It's like when, when, when we change how we talk, then we change, right? And this, the crisis that we're facing is in many ways, we have to invent a new way of conveying meaning. And the point that I get into the book is not that I have an I certainly don't know what necessarily, like, how we would do that. But I think that, if anything, as we embark upon that journey, something like ayahuasca and plant medicines in general can be very helpful on that. They can be a trusted companion in that adventure because if, cause what is going to happen is that if human beings subject themselves to this new computational language, automation, artificial intelligence, then our whole intersubjective matrix will be completely obliterated. And that's why we talked about yesterday about like how, you know, again, to use the example of Neuralink, I mean, this is a new language. Yeah. It's inserting tubules into the human nervous system to connect it with cloud computing. That's, that's a totally new way of conveying information. But again, that's not what McKenna's talking about. He's not talking about you know, big tech corporations inserting tubes in your brain to let you communicate uh, in a more rapid um, and, and non-oral fashion. He's talking about some kind of spiritual event, some kind of linguistic event that comes in and reformulates our capacity to share information with each other. That's what he's talking about. And that's what, I mean, ayahuasca does that during a ceremony. Right. It does that. That's exactly what it does. But the question is, how can something like that become 
you know, socialized or embedded into new kinds. Of, again, we're talking about crazy stuff right now, but we're also living in a, in a very crazy world yeah. that is on the brink of some kind of uh, serious, serious problem. Serious problem. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling to me that we've gone from computers where we're using ten fingers to smartphones, where our interface has been limited to two Some. thumbs. Yeah. Two thumbs instead of using ten fingers. Yeah. And that's going to eventually be if if things progress the way they are progressing, that will be no thumbs. Right. And then there'll be a direct neural interface. Right. And that, of course, will be very, very dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous. I mean, there's so many. There are so many potential pitfalls of that. It's you could do ten podcasts talking about that alone. Yeah, for sure. You know, so. All right. But this is what we talked about yesterday. It's like technology doesn't see people have this idea. We said this yesterday that people, you know, technology is quote unquote just the way people use it. It's right. not. Yeah. Technology is an autonomous system that is doing what it wants to do, and human beings can do little things here and there. But ultimately, it is reproducing itself and it has its own direction it has its own desire it has its own logic yeah. and it, the logic of technology is to take over human subjectivity to take over the world and i don't necessarily think that makes it bad in the sense that it's like this malicious agent but it's going to do bad things it's going to do and and when i say bad things it's going to do things that are not quote unquote human it's going to do technological things right it's going to do things that it does and i think that at some point if we like again, technology is never going to say, "Ah, okay, let's let's take it easy for a couple of years here." These guys have had enough technology. Let's no, yeah, it's going to keep not. saying more, more. So the only way that this can stop is if there's some kind of political intervention, which seems to me at the moment very, very unlikely, or some kind of psycho-spiritual intervention, some kind of change in how we uh, change in consciousness, change in how we see ourselves which will then repolarize the direction of technology. But again, we're, all, we're living in very, very dangerous times. Um, we're living in what I would even call apocalyptic times. And I don't use that in like the paranoid right-wing Christian sense. I use that in the sense of <coughs> we're in a time of uh, we're discovering new things about who we are and, where we, and, and what our future is. And really, you know, the one question that no one can answer on planet Earth, and it's so funny, there is not a single scientist that can answer this question, what is a human being? Not one. There's not one that can actually answer what that is. And I think, I don't necessarily think that we're going to you know, find that out, but I think that question, which was always important to human beings, always, that question is not important anymore. No one asks that, what is a human being? What? Who asked that question? And my feeling is that question is going to come back. That question, because that question is going to come back because of the crisis and the pain that people are feeling, that question is going to come back into public space. And the question is very simple. What is a human being? Yeah. And when that question comes back, you're going to have a lot of interesting artists and writers and thinkers and film directors and, and scientists too. I mean, I think like the great scientists like Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, these were people that thought of like, what is that question? But scientists at Pfizer and scientists working at a, you know, in the industrial, military industry, they don't think about that question. Right. They think about how can we produce the next algorithm or the next technology that's going to you know, generate profit and generate value for our shareholders. They don't think about that question. And I, and, and I think that question is important, and I think that that question is going to come back into our collective public space over the next... Uh, I think it's still good. 
Go ahead, see if it... Hello, hello? Yeah. That's all set? Yep. Yeah, so I just think that that question is going to become in vogue again. Um, and I think, you know, of course, there are downsides to that question because people fight over that question. I mean, all the religious wars in history were people fighting over that question. So right. it's not like it's a completely innocent question. But at the same time, it, it does have to be asked again because if it's not asked again, human beings are nothing but biological machines. Sure. And if a human being is nothing but a biological machine, then why can't we put neural link tubes in our brain? Why not? Right. It seems like we almost could be past human beings. We're, we're, we're something else. There's a biologist um, uh, named Chris Ryan, and he talks about how grasshoppers, when they get into large enough numbers, change genetically and become locusts. So I, I think it's possible that you, either in, in a dense enough, great enough population or with technology, we, we already are post-human beings, something well, else now. I mean, human beings are not grasshoppers. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, different people have advocated for this. Like, you know, for instance, the obvious person that advocated for the human to overcome himself was Nietzsche, right? And that, this is like a central piece of his philosophy, that human beings were just a bridge and they were something to transcend. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I I'm, I'm tend to not, like this kind of uh, desire of like being enlightened, this, this doesn't appeal to me anymore. At, at one point in the past, it did. But it doesn't anymore. I think I'm, you know, I'm figuring things out like everybody else, you know. Sure. And I think a lot of my writing is is part for me too to figure out what I think. You know what I mean? And, and to share that with other people. But when you say that it's going to take some sort of spiritual or psycho spiritual revolution, I didn't say revolution. I said event. I, I, event, yeah. sure. Do, yeah. do you think? I mean, there has to be some sort of catalyst for that. Do you think that? Something like ayahuasca or psychedelics in general could well, play a role in that. Ayahuasca is a vental. I mean, I use the word event the way the French philosopher Alan Badu uses it. And for Badu, a, a, uh, an event is an unexpected happening that comes into a situation and changes it. it completely, so it's like a meteor could be an event, right? Um, it's just something that, that comes, you know, and another great example for, for, for Badu is like you're walking down the street and like you meet the love of your life. Like that's a vental in the sense that it changes the texture of your life. And what Badu says is that in order to, in order for the event to become actualized, you have to have a fidelity to it. In other words, like if you're walking down the street and you like all of a sudden, like you lock eyes with somebody and you like meet the, like you can't walk away from that mm -hmm. you have to take it that, all. Is, that doesn't happen anymore now everyone no exactly well, we, we live in a non-evental world i mean totally i mean that's that's part of his point is that capitalism is a world with no events it doesn't allow these things because wow. capitalism is based upon the constant reproduction of data and the circulation of equivalence and exchange it's based on these things that don't want events Technolo technology doesn't want events. It doesn't want, you know, a great example of a technological event is like a, like a hacker. They're eventful in the sense right. that they, they, now, so, but what Badu says is that you have to have a fidelity to the event. You have to go with it. And I think f to a point, ayahuasca can be eventful in the sense that you can drink it one night and it can like change your life. You can have all these visions. And what Badu would say, well, you have to, you have to do what it says. You have to become what, what that, what you, you, you have to embody that change. So that's what I mean in the sense that when I say an event, I mean an unexpected occurrence comes in and opens a space where something new can happen. And that can happen on different levels. It can happen on the personal level, on the 
interpersonal love level, but it can also happen on the technological or the political level. I mean, like a revolution is an event, right? It's like a sudden uprising of people, right? This this has but, an, but it can't come come from within the system to to change well, the it, system as is. It well, has it, to come that's from the weird thing. It it's both it's simultaneously both external and internal, right? So it's it's like you know, like political like a political revolution, it usually is internal, right? But at the same time, the energy that drives it, it's like from somewhere else. It's like some kind of mist. Who knows where? Like, why do people all of a sudden have a revolution? I mean, no one really knows. It's just an energy that happens, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's tough to like quantify why that happened, right? But the idea when I say event is that what I'm basically saying is that if things keep progressing the way they're going, then we know what the future is. It's just it's more technology, more capitalism, more misery for human beings. So you have two options. Number one, you have like this kind of rational debate where politicians do something to mitigate this process, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen because politicians are really part of this process. Or you have some kind of unexpected occurrence that opens the space where things can change. And I think ayahuasca is a good example of that, but less so on the political level, more so on the individual level. So how I, I would relate that to the individual level is like, you know, Joe Schmo has been depressed for five years. He can't get his life together. He comes to the Amazon, he drinks ayahuasca, and boom, like he has a revelation. That's eventful. It opens up something, like he's had five years of the same thing, and all of a sudden something new. Right. Now you have to go with that. You can't go back. Yeah. You have to go. That's that's what I mean with 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 the event. So we're waiting for that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All and right. Then, and in the meantime, we do some podcasts and we write some books. Yeah, and we exactly. Try to be we nice. To, we try to be nice to people, and 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 that's it. Sweet. Anything else? That's it, man. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, Drew.